Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you guys could all make it, even though uh, we changed the time. We went, we lost an hour of sleep, but you guys are still here, so glad you're here. Um, I see a few new faces, so I want to introduce myself. I'm Caleb, or Pastor Caleb, apparently. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to be up here. Uh, it's been a kind of a busy week, but it's been a good week because I've been able to uh, research God's word in, in order to teach. Um, so I feel like I don't really talk that much, so it might be a good uh, opportunity to uh, give a little update on my life. Um, I've now been married for about one year with my beautiful wife, Kirsten. She's right there. You want to stand up? Uh, marriage has been a, a wonderful experience, and she's such a blessing for me, so I love you very much. Um, currently, I'm going to school at Horizon University, and I'll be graduating this summer with my bachelor's degree in biblical studies. So I'm really excited for that. All the hard work is finally going to come up to something with a diploma. Um, I'm also working in an elementary school with children who have special needs, um, which has definitely grown my patience, and it's grown my uh, understanding of how to deal with children. Uh, but it's been an awesome experience, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, most days I can come home having an experience that just makes me crack up because the kids are hilarious. Uh, and lastly in my life, I have now been an uncle for about six months <laughs> to, like, the cutest little baby ever. Is she in here? Where is she? She's not going to hear my sermon? <laughs> okay, good. I want her to know. Um, but that's also been a huge blessing in my life. So it's been really awesome to think back and uh, think back to all the blessing that God has given me. Um, it's, that's been a blessing in itself, just thinking back to all of them. And I'm so thankful for all the people in my life, which is all of you guys here. Um, I'm thankful for all the family in my life, which is a lot of you guys here. <laughs> And uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be up here and to, to teach. So thanks, Grandpa, for giving me the opportunity. Um, I know how important the role of teaching is, so I don't take it lightly. Um, so thank you. Um, so before I get into the sermon, let me just pray for our time and for the sermon. So let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for this time uh, that we can just come here and uh, learn more about you, uh, be inspired by your word, um, be inspired by fellow believers, Lord. Um, I pray that this time would draw each of us to a better understanding of you, a better, of un a better understanding of what we can do for you, Lord. Um, I pray that you'd speak through me, that you'd use my words in a mighty way. Um, I pray that my nerves or my lackings uh, wouldn't get in the way of your word, Lord, but that you'd just use me as an instrument for your will. Um, I pray that you'd be here among us, Lord, that we would sense your presence, um, and that you'd pierce each of our hearts and draw us uh, to seek you further, Lord. Uh, we just praise you, Lord, and we thank you in your holy name we pray. Amen. So uh, before I jump into the passage, which is Genesis chapter 22, um, I want to give a little background so we know the context of which the passage is from. So Genesis is the first chapter, or the first book of the Bible. It's known as a book of the laws, but it also has a lot of history, and it holds historical accuracy. Um, 
And the three main characters of this passage are God, Abraham, and Isaac. Now, Abraham, um, if you look back to chapter 6 in Genesis, it gives a little lineage um, and includes Abraham. Abraham is 20 generations removed from Adam, which we believe is the first man created by God. He's 10 generations removed from Noah, the man who built an ark, got a bunch of animals inside, and survived the flood, the wrath of God. So he's 10 generations removed from Noah, making Noah his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, <laughs> which places him to live around 2100 BC. And the date isn't completely agreed upon, so all we really need to know is that it was a really, really long time ago. So Abraham lived in southern Mesopotamia, uh, near the Tigris and Euphrates River, which if you guys have taken history, uh, the nation of Mesopotamia is pretty well known. He lived in that area. Uh, he lived during the time that Egypt was in power. Um, and he was very wealthy. He had many goats, sheep, and cattle, which back in the day was like gold. So if he had a lot of them, he was rich, and he had a lot. He had many servants. In fact, he had hundreds of servants. Um, and so in southern Mesopotamia, Abraham was wealthy, comfortable, happy, and healthy. But in chapter 12, which I'll, I'll turn to and read to you guys, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if I can find it, there it is. Uh, the Lord called Abraham to move from his country. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So he's happy and comfortable where he's at. He's wealthy. But God tells him to leave and to go to the land of Canaan. And so Abraham packed everything up and he went. He didn't question anything. He just, he got up and packed and went. And so he had, in Canaan, he was still very wealthy. He grew in the number of sheep and cattle that he owned, and he had hundreds of servants still. Uh, but he was lacking in one thing. He still didn't have any children. So he was wealthy, but he had no descendants to pass down his wealth to. So he cried out to God and asked, God, bring me an offspring. And in Genesis 15, 5, uh, God responded and said, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So this man who has no children, God pretty much told him he's going to have more descendants than any other human in the world. And 10 years later, after this blessing, after living in Canaan for 10 years, Abraham still had no children with his wife. And so he went against God's plan, and he ended up having a child with one of his maidservants, and he named him Ishmael. But because this wasn't God's plan, God wasn't going to fulfill his promise through Ishmael. So Abraham still had no legitimate children who would receive his uh, blessing of descendants numbering the stars in the sky. And in fact, Ishmael and his mother Hagar end up getting sent away from Abraham and aren't allowed back to him. 
And so he still has no offspring. And finally, after many years, his offspring with his wife finally comes, and he names him Isaac. And it's important to know that Abraham understands how important Isaac is for his promise. It's only through Isaac that he'll have descendants that number the stars. And it's also important that, to know that Abraham loves his son. He cherishes him. He's his only boy, so he loves him. And that's the context that we have for this chapter. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 12, for this passage. So beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So verse 1 shows us what the whole point of this passage is going to be about. It's going to be a test from God to Abraham. And I love how Abraham responds to him. He says, Here I am. Like how often do we respond to God or to anyone? Here I am. When my mom says Caleb or Kirsten, when she says Caleb, I say, What? <laughs> or or I don't even muster up enough energy to say what. I just say, hmm? But Abraham says, here I am. And it shows his complete and utter uh, obedience to God. It shows his reverence to who God is. He knows who he's talking to. He knows the authority that God has over him. And so that's where we are. Verse 2. It says, and God said to him, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I think it, it kind of sounds like God's trying to be mean here. Like all he had to say to, to Abraham was, go take your son. And Abraham would have known Isaac. But God says, take your son, your only son, you know, the one who you love. Yeah, take him up and sacrifice him on a mountaintop. But Abraham's not trying to, or God's not trying to be mean. He's showing how important Isaac is to Abraham. This, this child that he was going to go sacrifice wasn't a troubled child. He wasn't like Allison, mean to his siblings. <laughs> no, he was a good child that Abraham loved. Abraham was wealthy, but his most prized possession was his son. And so God tells him, take your most prized possession, the one who you'll receive your promise through, the one whom you love, the one who you're crazy about, take him and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And I want to give a description of what a burnt offering is, because it's pretty graphic. So warning, if you can't handle blood or something, just cover your ears. But I think it's important that we understand what exactly God was telling Abraham to do. And... Uh, you can find it in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 5 to 17. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to give a summary. But if you want to look at it later, this is where it's found. So the first thing that you do is you slit the animal's throat. And you drain its blood into a bowl. And after that, you splash all of the blood across an altar. And if that's not bad enough, then you have to cut the animal into pieces you separate the pieces into different piles. One pile gets washed before it's burned. And then after, you put them all together and you burn them on a fire. And I can't even imagine doing that to my dog. And my dog is annoying. <laughs> he smells bad. He eats my food. 
He steals stuff out of my trash can, and I have to clean it up. And I can't even imagine doing that to Jake. And Grandpa, I don't think you could do that to Molly. <laughs> and God was telling him to do that to his son whom he loved. It's pretty crazy. I get a little drink of water. I'm thirsty. So if I was Abraham, I can think of a few different scenarios of what I would do. The first possible thing I would do is I would straight up say to God, God, that is wrong. Human sacrifice is wrong. Murder is bad. And if you look in other chapters of the Bible, you can find that God says human sacrifice is wrong. And so God himself believes human sacrifice is wrong. So I would have said, no, I'm not going to sacrifice my son. That's wrong. Or another possible thing I would have done is I would have said, God, you realize you promised me descendants that number the stars through this child. Isn't it kind of counterproductive to then kill him? Like, I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure if you're dead, you can't have children. <laughs> I'm just, you can think about it and maybe come back to me on that. Or another scenario is I would have said, all right, if God, uh, uh, going along with the, with the verses, God would have said, Caleb, and I would have said, here I am. <laughs> and he would have said, go sacrifice your son on a mountaintop. And I would have said, sorry, I can't get to the phone right now, but if you leave your name and number. <laughs> but I would have been out of there. There's no way I'm going to sacrifice my only child, the one whom I love, my own flesh and blood. No. There's no way I would have done that. And in a way... Wouldn't it have been kind of the right thing to do to not kill my child? Like, isn't it kind of noble not to kill your child? And I think that's just a narrow view of the situation. And so I have an example for you. So remember, I work with children, so we build blocks a lot. And the kids like to build big towers, and then they like to destroy them. They like to headbutt them and stuff. But the worst thing that can possibly happen is if one kid builds it and another kid destroys it. Fisticuffs break out. Like their fists are flying, tears are falling, and kids end up rolling on the ground and have to break them up. So that's the wrong thing to do. And it's because the kids feel that because they created the tower, they are the only ones with the authority to destroy it. And I think we can all agree with this because we have laws making it illegal to vandalize any other person's property. So we, in our beliefs, in our culture, we believe that if you've created something, if it's yours, then you have the authority to do what you want and no one else does. And in Abraham's situation, God created all things. He created every person, every being, everything on this earth. And so God has the authority to do what he wants with whatever he wants. And Isaac being his creation, God had every right to take him and do what he wanted. And so me saying no to God wouldn't have been noble. It would have been a lack of reverence to the authority that God is. And ultimately, it would have been a lack of faith in God. And so now verse 3. <clears throat> showing. So I would have said no. Let's see what Abraham would have done. It says, so Abraham rose early in the next morning. And he didn't wake up early to hide the fact of what he was going to do from his wife. He wasn't trying to get away from his wife. He got up early out of complete obedience to God. 
He understood the authority that God had over him, and he obeyed. And waking up early was his prompt obedience. He didn't procrastinate and then sluggishly begin working. He got up early and got to business. And the rest of verse 3 says, He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And so I want to point out again that he had wood, he had servants, and he had a donkey, which shows he had wealth. But his most prized possession was his son. But also I want to point out that he got up early and then began cutting wood, which he knew exactly what it was going to be used for. And he went on to the place that God had for him. That's such a display of obedience. It's amazing. And verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So they made it to the destination. But they had to travel for three days. And they didn't have a Jeep to off-road in. They didn't have a van. Hashtag van life. They didn't have it. (laughs) They didn't have anything. They had to hike and climb and travel, probably wearing sandals or nothing. And they slept on uncomfortable blankets, probably, on top of dirt in the middle of nowhere. Like, he had to work hard for what? To sacrifice his son whom he loved. And the closest thing that I can think of that I've experienced to this is when I went backpacking in the High Sierras. And keep in mind, the High Sierras, it's beautiful. There's mountains and rivers He was traveling through like a desert area, so it wasn't even pretty. When I was backpacking, we got to fish from lake to lake, and what got me through the hiking was knowing that there was going to be a lake at the end of the trail. Like there was times that I was going to give up, and my dad gave up at one point, and we had to talk him into it. (laughs) We saw a huge cliff with rocks, and my dad was like, I'm not doing it. I can't. Lance, I'm not doing it. But what got us through that was, the no, was knowing that we had something fun at the end of it. We are going to be fishing. And Abraham didn't have anything at the end of his tunnel to think of to push him towards it. What he was going to do after he had finished all of his hard work was sacrifice his only son. And so what pushed him to, to do this wasn't the desire to have fun. It was his obedience to God. It was his desire to obey God. What pushed him to continue on was his faith. And I want to point out that when I went on my trip, I was 21 years old, so I was the, in the peak of my, my athletic abilities. And Abraham here is over 100 years old. And in the next chapter, he ends up burying his wife who died of old age. So he's an old man. This is a trek for him, and he did it. For what? To sacrifice his son. And then verse 5, it says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So he tells his servants to stay with the donkey, probably because they wouldn't understand what he was about to do. 
He didn't want them to try and stop him. He wanted to fulfill exactly what God had told him to do. So he told them to stay. But then at the end of that sentence, he also says, I and the boy will go and worship and then come back to you, saying that him and his son will come back to you. And I don't think that's a lie. He's not lying here. He's not trying to keep the peace. He truly believes that he and the son will still come back to him even after he sacrifices his son. And that's hard for us to understand because we think of that as kind of a mutually exclusive event, which means only one of them can happen. Either the boy is dead or he has kids. If he has kids, he's not dead, but if he's dead, he's not going to have kids. But Abraham's faith was so big in God that he truly believed that no matter what, God would fulfill his promise through Isaac. And that even after sacrificing his son, his son would still bear children for him. That's, that's faith. What faith? And verse 6, it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. It kind of sounds messed up to me because he's making Isaac carry the very wood that he's going to burn him on. I mean, if I'm going to kill someone, I would at least carry the equipment. <laughs> I'm not going to let him carry it up the hill. But that wasn't supposed to be uh, messed up. It's actually a symbolic verse. It's showing the offering and the offerer. Isaac carrying the wood, the offering, and Abraham carrying the knife, the offerer. And so they go up together. And verse 7 gets a little awkward. It says, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So Isaac sees that he, they have the wood, they have everything they need except for the offering. And it's Isaac's carrying the wood, Abraham's holding the knife, and then he has to go and ask that. Like, that's so awkward. I can picture crickets chirping. But Abraham's response is even more interesting than the question. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And this verse is interesting because it can be interpreted in two different ways. First, he's just replying to his son saying, God will provide. He's not saying anything important. Or what I like to think is probably what he was saying, because it makes it a little more ominous, is that he was answering his son by saying, my son. Let me read it for you guys real quick. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, which is my son. So it's kind of foreshadow, but I don't think Isaac understands what he means by that. And honestly, either interpretation is completely fine, but it's kind of interesting to think about. So they go on. Verse 9, it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
So we've reached the climax. What this whole thing, the whole trip has led up to, we're finally here. Abraham built the altar. He tied his son up on it. They're there. He's ready. But I think it's funny how anticlimactic the climax is. Like, all he does is he ties up his son. And if we remember, Isaac was strong enough to carry up the wood up the mountain. He's strong enough to go on a three-day journey. His dad is old. He probably could have fought him and won and gotten away. Like, why didn't Isaac try and fight? Why didn't he try and run? Or at least ask, uh, Dad, why are you tying me up? <laughs> What's going on? He didn't ask anything. He was completely submissive to his father. But I think it shows his obedience to his father. And the obedience and trust that he shows his father by letting him tie him up is the same obedience and trust that Abraham shows his father by tying Isaac up. And verse 10, it says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And I picture this like a John Hitchcock film. You know the one called Psycho, where you see the shadowy figure holding up a knife behind a curtain? I picture that Abraham's holding the big knife above his son, but instead of like the movie, his son Isaac can see exactly what his father's going to do. He can see his dad. He can look into his eyes and see that he's about to stab him. And Abraham knows his son. He loves his son who he's about to stab. And just as Abraham is about to thrust down his knife towards his son's chest, we hear a voice telling Abraham to stop. And I think it's kind of funny because Isaac must have been like, oh, you saved my life. You're an angel. But in this situation, it literally was an angel. <laughs> and the angel says to Abraham in verse 11, it says, but the angel of the Lord called to the him from the heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the repetition of Abraham's name shows the urgency in the angel's voice. It shows that God waited till the very last moment to stop Abraham from fulfilling his promise, or fulfilling what he was told to do. It shows that God waited to the very last moment so that he knew for sure Abraham would fulfill it. And while still holding the knife, Abraham calmly says, here I am, just the same way that he did the first time that he talked to the angel. And verse 12 says, the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham and Isaac probably took some deep breaths. Abraham t probably told his son, maybe this is something we don't have to tell your mom about. <laughs> but what's important to know is that God accepted the sacrifice even though Abraham didn't have to follow through because God knew Abraham had every intention to follow through. 
And the reason I chose this passage is because I think it gives a very good uh, description of God and of Abraham. And so first I want to go through God, what we can learn about God through this passage. <clears throat> first I'm going to get a drink of water. So we can see that God desires people to obey him. He finds, he, it brings him glory when people obey him. And Abraham obeyed him in many different ways. So God enjoys it when people obey him. We can see that God provides. <clears throat> Later in this chapter, God provides a ram instead of Isaac. And in fact, Abraham ends up naming this place God will provide. So God provides. And next we can see that God is sovereign. And I want to break down why he's sovereign. See, God's eternal and he's omniscient. So he's everlasting and he knows all things. He's not bound by time, which means he's at all places and at all times at once. God never discovers anything. He knows all things. And so this test was not to learn what Abraham would do. The test was all to grow and mature Abraham. God never intended on Isaac being sacrificed. He only wanted Abraham's obedience. So God is sovereign in that the test was not to, under, to learn if Abraham loved him. The test was purely for Abraham's betterment. <clears throat> I mean, think about it. Through Abraham, uh, through this test, Abraham knew God better. Through this test, he knew his own faith better. And through this test, people have been inspired for centuries. And that should be encouraging for each of us today, that God is sovereign. Whether you're dealing with death or busyness of life or the fear of the unknown of what will happen in your life, God is right there with you. And he's not waiting for you to, to get past all your struggles to meet him. He's there the whole time with you. And he's using all of that for your betterment. Nothing in your life is without God. So whatever you're dealing with, whatever trouble you have in your life, God can use it for your good. And that's a whole different perspective because so often we think, gosh, how am I going to get through this? This is so terrible. But what if we thought instead, God's going to use this. How can I be used more by God in this situation? And lastly, through this passage, we see God's love. And that's kind of interesting because he tells Abraham to kill his only son. But we definitely see God's love here. God had every right and authority to take Isaac, but he didn't because he loved Abraham. He loved Abraham enough to keep him from the pain of sacrificing his son. 
And God's love is shown even more when we realize that what he didn't allow Abraham to do, God himself did. God loved Abraham enough to keep him from sacrificing his own son, but God did exactly that. God took his son, his only son, whom he loves, and he sacrificed him on a cross. God is good. And God's love is so amazing. And I think with all of this in mind, it's pretty safe to say that God's deserving of our love too, right? And he's deserving of our praise and of our faith. God is good. And now Abraham. What can we learn about Abraham through this passage? Well, we see his obedience. He's an obedient servant to God. And we can see that through the fact that he left southern Mesopotamia to go to Canaan. And we can see that in the fact that he sacrificed his son. He always obeyed. But I want to point out that his obedience is a result of something deeper in his heart. His obedience is a result of his faith. So we can see his faith in the fact that he would sacrifice his only son. But we can also see his faith even more in the fact that he would sacrifice his son and still believe that God would use that son to fulfill his promise of descendants that number the stars. And so Abraham is known by many, by all, for his big faith. And in fact, if you go to Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, the chapter is known as the Hall of Faith, kind of like the Hall of Fame for athletes, but the Hall of Faith. And Abraham has a few verses just for him. And it describes his faith that is seen in this passage. So he's known for his faith. But did he always have it? Was it always that strong? And so I want to look back uh, in, a few, in a different chapter of Genesis to see, did Abraham always have that big faith? So Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 to 13. It says, when he, entered, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, who her name changed to Sarah later. But it says, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that, in, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And in chapter 20, the same thing happened. Verses 1 to 2. I'm just going to go from 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So this man who's known by his faith at one point trembled at the fear of his own life to other men. He told people that his wife was his sister and then he let other kings take his wife to be their own wife. And what's funny is that after they took her, they would end up bringing her back like, why did you tell her she was, a, she was your wife? Because 
uh, God would end up cursing those men. So God was powerful, and he totally had the ability to keep him safe. But Abraham, the man who, in this passage, chapter 22, sacrificed his son, trembled in fear for his own life. So my point is that Abraham's known for his faith, but it wasn't always that way. He had to grow in his faith. And eventually he did get to this, but he had to work towards it. And how did he get to that? By putting his faith in action. Every time he stepped out in obedience, his faith grew. And you know what? God saw his faith as righteousness. Meaning that big faith is a good thing. It's something that we should desire. It's something that we ourselves should want. The faith that we see in chapter 22 isn't something we should read about and say, wow, what faith, and then close our Bibles and then forget about it. The faith that we see here is something that we need to be striving towards. Abraham put his faith in action. And we can see this in the fact that he spent days traveling and then tied his son up and sacrificed him. So Abraham's big faith, it drew him to be willing to sacrifice his only son. And so I ask all of us today, including myself, where is your faith drawing you to? Abraham's faith was big enough to draw him to sacrifice his only son. Is your faith big enough to read your Bible throughout the week? Is your faith big enough to go to church every Sunday and be with God's people? And if you're saying, yeah, well then is your, is your faith big enough to step out of your comfort zone and be used by God? Think about it. And I'm going to be honest with you, God's not preoccupied with our actions. By doing good things for God, it's not going to make him love you more. It's not going to make you any more saved. God cares about your heart and your faith. We are saved through faith. We are saved by faith through we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Amen. Not a result of works that no man may boast. So we're saved by our faith, not by our works. I just want to make that clear. But I'm also going to be honest. Your actions are a direct response to your faith. What you truly believe in your actions will follow. So if you have a big faith in God, if you feel that you have a big faith in God, your actions should show it. Which leads me to my conclusion. Abraham's actions screamed of his faith. What do your actions say about your faith? And I want you to think about this throughout your week. I know I have been, and I will continue to. Let it challenge you. 
And if you're here today and your faith has been stagnant, you haven't grown in your faith, I have encouragement for you. Abraham was there too. There's still time. Abraham grew and so can you. And I have even more good news. Our church is moving. And so we're going to have so many more opportunities for you to step out and put your faith into actions. I challenge you, step out in faith and be used by God. And if you're here today and you go to another church normally, I'm not saying this is the only place you can be used. I challenge you to step out in your faith at whatever church you go to and be used by God there. But if you don't feel the opportunity or the community at your church, we do welcome you with open arms. (laughs) And I promise you that you will have opportunities. Whether it be coming early to help set up the sound system, whether it be coming early to greet all the new people that will be coming to our church, whether it be coming early to set up coffee, Arissa, (laughs) whatever it may be, I challenge you to step out and be used by God. Step out in faith. And so in summation, I have a few bullet points for for you guys. Just in summary of all that I just said. God is good. Can we agree on that? He's deserving of our faith. And why is he deserving? He's omniscient, he's sovereign, he's perfect, and he's loving. So he's deserving. True faith governs a person's actions. Abraham's faith drew him to action. And therefore, our faith should draw each of us to action. And so I leave you with this question. What will your faith have you do? Worship team, can you come up? Think about that throughout your week. What will your faith have you do?